Hey, this is Damien Sheeter, Senior Pastor of New City, Orlando. In this podcast episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Tim Keller. Many of our listeners will know of Tim. Tim is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's the author of numerous best-selling books and certainly one of the best preachers in our generation. In this particular episode, we had the opportunity to discuss New City's mission and vision. We talked about what are the obstacles and opportunities of whole life discipleship in our current culture. I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Tim, for your time, and uh, I want to jump in here to the first question. So your ministry and Redeemer uh, has been known for the important distinction of the gospel being a third way, so not legalism or antinomianism, but something else. Uh, I've also heard you say that you have wanted Redeemer to be known for breaking down dualism as well. So I'm curious, can you speak to what dualism often looks like in the Christian life today and, and how it actually shares the same impulse as legalism and antinomianism? Yeah, certainly. Well, du- you know, dualism can be used a lot of different ways. Um, I think usually in philosophy, dualism meant the um, pitting the body against the spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing a, seeing that the body and the spirit were kind of incompatible. Dualism also usually uh, sees a hierarchy. That is, the, that by and large, the spirit and the church are good, the body and the world is bad. Mm-hmm. And so dualism separates and seals off your faith from your work and mm-hmm. conduct in your world. It tends to say come into the church where we're all Christians and we can really do God's work and out there it's sort of secular stuff or maybe it's even a little defiling mm. and um, and so you know do your work and you know try as much as possible out there not to get defiled and then come in here where we're really doing the Lord's work so that's dualism out there is bad you know sort of body soul dualism or world church dualism now uh, the, the Christian faith, of course, really breaks that down by saying that everything is creationally good. When God made everything, it was good. Everything is good um, that he made, body and soul. In fact, of course, he not only created body and soul, but he's redeeming body and soul right. because Jesus didn't just go to heaven, he was resurrected. This is very, very clear that God wants to redeem body and soul. And everything is creationally good, but everything is also fallen. Mm. And therefore, everything is mixed. So anger, by the way, is not, uh, it's creationally a good thing Mm. because God gets angry all the time. And that's that's because he's good. And if if you're good, then you get angry at anything that is uh, threatening the good. I mean, you should, okay. But but our anger has a sinful, a deeply sinful layer to it because it's basically, it, it, it's prone to violence, it's selfish, it's, it's we get angry, uh, not really, we're really, really not zealous for the good, we're zealous for ourselves and so on. Mm. And so every single thing, you know, every artistic product has both a creational good and an idolatrous aspect to it. And so the Christian faith breaks down dualism pretty badly. Now, you just mentioned what about legalism, antinomianism. See, legalism leads to dualism because legalism, I'm trying to basically save myself by being good. 
And it doesn't like faith and work because it, it does legalism says, come in here where we know what the rules are. Mm. Whereas out there, it's kind of defiling. And besides that, we're not sure what the rules are. So, for example, if you're an owner of a business, um, and so the corporate profits every year are yours, what should, is there a Christian approach to corporate profits? Mm. And, that, you know, the answer is, in general, probably, yeah. That you shouldn't, you know, you could, you could, from the Bible you could say, you really shouldn't spend all of your corporate profits on yourself. You shouldn't take it all out. Mm-hmm. You should leave a lot of it in the business in order to give your customers a better price and to give your employees better uh, money and that sort of thing. So in general, there probably is a Christian approach to your corporate profits, but there's nothing, it's nothing uh, there's no place in the Bible that tells you how much you should take out and how much you should leave. And legalists hate that. So what they want to do is they don't want to be talking about what does it mean to be a Christian in the workplace because it's just it's it's gray and they can't handle that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the antinomians don't like to talk about faith and work because they actually feel like well God just loves me and I'm basically free to do what I want. So they would see it as legalistic to say that there's a Christian approach to your corporate profits mm-hmm. and that you really shouldn't take it all out for yourself. They would say it's legalistic. They would say, I can do what I want with it. You know, my money's mine. I, I put the capital up. It was all my risk. I can do what I want with it. And, and so antinomianism and legalism uh, tends to not, they tend to be dualistic in the sense of here's my, here's my Christian faith, and it's almost nothing to do with how I'm actually living my life out there mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I always like to say that uh, the gospel is against legalism and against antinomianism, but it's also against dualism. Mm. And that both illegalism and antinomianism lead to dualism. So there we go. A little bit of a long answer. No, that's great. So at New City, uh, our stated mission is to make whole life disciples for their callings. And so we, we emphasize callings because we think that the Bible teaches that all of us have multiple callings, first of all, to the Lord and then to our neighbor, but that shapes up and out in various ways. And so we we just call it that, whole life disciples for their callings, trying to capture that. Uh, we also emphasize that anytime we gather as a church in any capacity, we gather to be formed, but we're formed to be sent into the world on mission. And in Center Church, which has been so helpful to me and us here at New City as we've thought about designing a theological vision and a philosophy of ministry. So thank you for that. And and in that book, The Third Mark of a Missional Church, in that chapter, uh, you say this, a missional church will affirm that all Christians are people in mission in every area of their lives. And then you go on to say in the next paragraph, a church that equips its people in this way will not only be something like a lay seminary in discipleship and training, it will also find ways to strongly support the people in their ministering outside the walls of the church. And so that's something that we do emphasize uh, a lot here at New City. So I'm curious if you can speak to some cultural realities that now require this environment of, quote, something like a lay seminary and discipleship and training. Why is that so important uh, for the church today? Well, because the world in the past, um, most most Western countries, including America, you might say the background worldview of almost everybody was Christianish 
So, for example, it's understanding uh, the average person, the cultural institutions of America, gave people a general respect for the Bible, kind of, at least, uh, a roughly speaking, a kind of Christian understanding of morality, mm-hmm. um, of loving your neighbor, um, not committing adultery, not lying, you know, kind of a... Uh, uh, also, generally speaking, even a uh, an understanding that the the meaning of life was to be a good person, and nobody quite ever lives up to that, and so there's a need for forgiveness. In other words, you might say the the, the, the you might say the the mental furniture or the intellectual furniture of the average person in America didn't contradict Christianity. Now, it wasn't it you know it didn't understand grace, didn't understand the gospel. You know, there's all sorts of things, but it didn't contra- it didn't directly contradict Christianity. So when you came in, uh, in some ways, you when you were training people in church, you didn't have to go all that deep. Mm-hmm. Another way to put it is, they had the dots. You all had to connect the dots mm-hmm. in church. So they had the dots. They understood guilt. They understood moral absolutes. They understood identity is basically I need to be a good person, I need to live up to these all these roles and duties. Yeah. Uh you know, so their understanding of identity, their understanding of morality, their understanding of uh uh community their their understandings were not against Christianity. They they had the rudiments of it. So you could just connect the dots. Now the problem of course is you're that that that's changed. Hmm. And the culture is catechizing your people. That is, they are teaching them approaches to morality, approaches to identity, approaches to uh, happiness, approaches to community that are radically different than the Christian approach. Mm-hmm. And, they're, they're, and they're catechizing your people through the media, through, through stories, through movies, through, uh, uh, through advertising, everything. And unless you go deeper now with your people, you don't just connect the dots. The dots aren't there. Mm. So unless you unless you root your people into more more deep into theology, what does it mean that we're in the image of God? What does it mean that we're created? What does it mean? You have to think those things out. Like a, a quick example, like for example, um, um, uh, just a couple of years ago, and you know there was a a, movie, a Disney movie, right? Moana. Mm, yeah. A Polynesian Pacific, you know, crown princess. She's a Pacific Polynesian. Uh, She's a crown princess, and her father is showing her around, saying that since you're going to be the leader of these people, so you need to stay here, and you need to live a life, live a life of duty, because they need you. And then her grandmother shows up and says, and, and she says, well, you know, I don't want to stay here. I want to have adventure. I want to go off my own. And she says, the, Moana sing, uh, the grandmother sings a song and says, whatever your heart tells you, whatever you most want to do, that's the real you. Mm. And you need to do that. So the, the father was saying you can find yourself in your duties, and your and but but the grandmother is saying you fi- you find yourself in your heart. And you decide what you decide what you want to do. Now that's a very different approach to identity. Mm. Now the traditional approach to identity, which is you find yourself in your duties, that's not a fully Christian identity. But at least, like I said, it's kind of got the rudiments of it. That I don't define myself. I have to align with some good outside of myself. Mm-hmm. But but the, the, the modern idea of identity, which has developed, it's, it's expressive individualism. It's extremely 
uh, inward looking. And um, you, you decide who you want to be, and then you demand that everyone else in society fit you. And uh, so here's the Disney movie. Basically, it's beautiful. It's lovely. It's exciting. And it also kind of resonates with other things. And, and of course, no Polynesian, and act, there would be no Polynesian Pacific princess would ever act like that. Mm. Because no, it's, it's reading a Western cultural mindset into um, a, uh, a Polynesian, you know, situation and giving Western people the idea that the Western idea of identity is universal. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an incredible piece of propaganda at that point. And yet it's lovely. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie right. in so many ways. It's just a great movie. And yet it's doing a number on you. See, if you don't catechize your people as deeply as that and get down that deep, then they're just duck soup for this. Mm. They're just, they're just being, they're, they are just, they're going to be catechized. So unless you're, unless you are really much more deeply catechizing and training your people, um, they're going to get trained by the world. And at a, at a certain point, they're going to just say, you know, Christianity doesn't, doesn't really feel all that doesn't, it's not plausible anymore. Mm. Yeah. I've heard it said in, in many places that it would be easy to think that both from church leaders, but then also congregants thinking that they come to church to be formed as though they were just an empty slate, right? But rather they come malformed and we're all being malformed because we're being catechized by the culture, as you're saying. So we actually, there's, yep. a, there's a bit of counterformation that also needs to go on uh, in, in these places. And so I'm curious, did you and or do you get pushback? I mean, uh, one thing as a pastor I'm always wanting to be aware of is that I'm trying to tell them that I believe that their primary discipleship is carried out in the world, in their callings as they're being sent uh, with Jesus. And I, as we talk about this, um, there's a sense in which yet I'm also saying, but we need you to come spend time, significant time going deep, to use that language, uh, in discipleship so that you can be formed and counterformed to be sent. And obviously we live in a very uh, almost, uh, what would be the word, fast pace almost seems too small. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, almost at a terrible pace we're living. And so that, yeah. that message can sound contradictory almost, where I'm saying, hey, I want, you, I want to form you to, be, to send you out uh, on mission, and yet we need you to gather to be formed. So, so how have you found yourself um, trying to communicate that tension that it's both and? Well, that's, yeah, well, that's an old problem. That's not a new problem. And I've been in ministry almost going on 50 years now. Um, it's uh, <clears throat> it's it's, oh, it's <laughs> let me let me put it as bluntly as I can. Please, you put so much emphasis in your church on outreach, 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 and you start to see after about three or four years, it's starting to grow. People are starting to work, reach out. You're seeing people come to faith. And then somebody comes along and says, oh, wait a minute, we're spending so much time outward facing, we're just not building people up. We're not taking the time to really root them and ground them. Mm. And then you, then you spend four or five years saying, yeah, you're right, but we have to root, 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 root. <laughs> and then after four or five years, somebody comes along and says, we've, we've started to get ingrown. We need to push out. And I've come to realize that what you just do is you just assume that, that, 
that that those cycles are going to happen and you anticipate them. If you're a good leader, you know somebody's going to start to complain hmm. that we spend so much time building up our outreach that we've actually lost our uh, we, we, we we've been neglecting the formation. Hmm. And then you spend all your time on the formation. You you can't do everything at once. So I generally basically have cycles hmm. in which over, say, two, the next two or three years, we're really going to build up the formation. The next two or three years, we're going to really build up the outreach. And I just I just assume that you, you don't wait for somebody to complain. <laughs> Anticip, anticipate it. You just have to do both, and they, you just have to do both. And they and they they're interdependent, and it's a, there's a symbiotic relationship between the two. Hmm. That's good. So, is it fair to say then that it's it's less of a problem to be solved and more of a tension to be managed in the in the life cycle of a of a congregation? Exactly. That's good. It, it seemed appropriate to what you were naming, and I think that that's very helpful, not just for the congregational leaders, but also those in the congregation uh, to know right. that there are there are seasons, there are rhythms uh, to a to a long term vision of a church and in right. a community. That's helpful. Right. I appreciate that. So uh, I want to share one more quote with you from Center Church that you wrote. You wrote, a missional church will be more deeply and practically committed to deeds of compassion and social justice than traditional fundamentalist churches, and more deeply and practically committed to evangelism and conversion than traditional liberal churches. And you said this kind of church is profoundly counterintuitive to American observers who are no longer able to categorize and dismiss that church as liberal or conservative. So I'm curious, can you share a couple of examples of how you've experienced that to be true in your ministry? And then some practical examples of, of how a church, even like New City, uh, can begin to cultivate this type of ethos and action where you're doing both of these realities. Well, the ma- yeah. Um, well, I mean, what I, was, what, I was, what I was speaking about, it. yeah, I'll give you some examples, but at the, at the top level— what this means is that there's a, there tends to be churches that put the emphasis on evangelism and out and conversion and getting people into groups that where you're evangelizing them. It takes an awful lot of energy. It's uh, all, but also uh, helping people get out in the community and do good deeds and build up certain neighborhoods takes a lot of energy too. And I have to say, I've just it's rare to see churches. It, it's almost like uh, it's like the people who have a real heart for one generally do not have as much of a heart for the other, mm-hmm. and wh- wh- and for whatever reason, wh- whichever side gets the upper hand in a church, it usually squeezes out the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, I really think theologically that's very weak. I really feel like there's no good reason for it, but yet it's the reality. Uh, and it's also true, by the way, the evangelists tend to be more politically conservative. And the justice people tend to be more politically liberal, mm-hmm. and and uh, there's you know I wrote a I wrote a New York Times uh, op-ed piece where I try to explain that the, uh, the the one of the reasons why and then, so here's my example of politics mm-hmm. and when it when it comes down if you look at the if you look at the two political parties I do think that you have to say that that. Biblically, Christians are pro-life to one degree or another, Mm -hmm. and they are for uh, the traditional understanding of marriage, uh, that sex should be inside of marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, 
And that immediately makes you politically conservative. But at the same time, the the church has historically been, uh, says that, you know, the relig- Christian identity, it was the first Christian, uh, was the first, Christianity was the first church, first religion to come along and say, your faith is more important than your race. <laughs> because every other religion always basically, if you're that race, that's your God. You know, you're, that those people have that God. And therefore, religion was always basically the, you might say, an entailment of the culture. The, the religion mm-hmm. c- kind of was, the, 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 your race was the dog and the religion of your race was the tail. Christianity comes along and reverses that. Mm-hmm. And automatically created, it was the first multi-ethnic religion because, because I'm a Christian first and I'm black or white or Asian or Hispanic second. And that brings people together. And so Christians, uh, historically, uh, Christianity is the most culturally flexible religion. It's the one religion. On, there's no other religion that is in every on every continent. Um, you know, Islam is still Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism are mainly still certain parts of the world, and Christianity is all over it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Christianity should always be for racial justice. It has been. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a leader against the slavery against slavery and all. Uh, and so. It, it, its emphasis on on multi-ethnic leadership and racial justice and economic justice, it looks very liberal. And I'm talking about what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. So if you actually take what, what the Bible says is you, the, the, the Democrats and Republicans have ethical package deals. Mm-hmm. So if you're pro-life and you're, um, and you're against same-sex marriage, then the entailment is that you, you really feel like, well, racism isn't that big a problem. And people need to just pull themselves up by their bootstrap. On the other hand, if you're a Democrat um, and you're big on racism is a problem, then uh, you shouldn't be pro-life and you should be more, uh, you know, be okay on same-sex marriage. And so Christians actually just don't, I always think a a thoughtful Christian actually doesn't fit in either party. Mm. Uh, I think Christians have got to be in either party Yeah. because there's only two parties. And you shouldn't be politically, you know, inactive. And you need to decide, you know, where, where you're going to fight your battles or, who, where, you know, where the preponderance of what. But even there, the other issue is Christians have to absolutely be for the poor. But the Bible does not say how you help the poor. Mm. Uh, uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about tax structure. You know, and so you have the, you have some more conservative, politic, economically conservative people say the better thing is smaller government, lower taxes, and more private enterprise, and that will help the poor. And there's other people say no, no, higher taxes and more government programs that'll help the poor. And guess what? The Bible doesn't tell you, and so you're going to have to make a prudential decision about that. But I have to say, churches ought to be if they were if they were more run by the Bible and less by Fox News or MSNBC. Mm-hmm. If people were actually forming their political views on the, by thinking out the implications of what the Bible says, rather than actually getting sucked up in these media matrices, okay, mm-hmm. these bubbles, they would actually – Christians wouldn't all be necessarily centrist, but you'd have, you'd have Republicans and Democrats in the party, in, in your church. Mm-hmm. You, you, would, you would have people who would look traditional in some ways in their moral values, but at the same time were very, very – involved in uh, working for racial and economic justice, and we wouldn't fit in the categories right now. 
And by the way, there's people, there's people out there trying desperately to make everybody, you've got to choose a category. You're either left or you're right. You're either all this or you're all that. And Christians just don't fit. Hmm. And, and actually, any of, any of us that say what I just said are going to get attacked because both sides feel like, well, you're just helping the enemy. Hmm. Now, so my, I would say the answer is my, my, my main example is politics. Yeah. That if your church and if, you're, if you as a pastor uh, refuse to f- the pressure that basically wants you to identify your church with a particular political platform. Uh, you know, I hate to say this, but it is absolutely wrong, totally wrong, to vilify people on the basis of their race. Christian, biblically, you must not uh, vilify people on the basis of race. You must not be disdainful. So speaking ill of immigrants is wrong. But does the Bible say whether America ought to have an immigration policy that allows a million people a year? to legal immigrate, or should it be 500,000, or should it be 2 million? And right now, there's a war being fought politically over it, and I've had people tell me, well, if you're a Christian, and you care about Christian culture, and this is a good Western nation, you should be trying to lower the number of people coming in. I've had other people saying, if you're a Christian, and you really see that we're supposed to love the alien and the immigrant, you ought to raise that number. I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't speak to that number. Mm. And you've got to allow people of difference of opinion. And you can't, you can't reason directly from anything in the Bible to exactly how many people we ought to be letting in the country every year. Mm-hmm. You just can't. So uh, the, our churches ought to be impossible to categorize. And right now, let's face it, they are not. They are very, they, you can categorize them. And you know what that means? The non-Christian looks at that and says, oh, churches are really just another power block. Mm-hmm. They're just another power block, that's all. They're just another way that this group or that group is trying to get power. Yeah. So how how have you, and how would you encourage someone like me here at New City, cultivate the type of ethos that you're talking about? Well, you see, the brother, actually, I just told you, even though I mean, I spoke in general terms, uh-huh. <laughs> so I gave you the impression I was speaking generally, and you said, well, how do you do it? Exactly this way. Mm. In other words, over the years, I have I've refused, and, and I've often confronted people in my own church who wanted to say, well, you know, if, we, if you really follow what the Bible says, this is a justice issue, we should be allowing more immigrants in. I say, sorry, look, you can, as an individual Christian, you can be working on for, for that out there, but in the church, you shouldn't be trying to argue for that as the Christian position. It's not the Christian position. And I've had people, I mean, I've had people on both the right and the left in my church feel like you've got to be preaching about these issues, which what they mean is you need to be showing that if you're a Christian, you ought to be denouncing Donald Trump or you should be not denouncing Donald Trump. You know? Yeah, right. Words, and, and the point is, no, 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 no. Then we're just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. And um, absolutely not. But at the same time, the church itself needs to be equally um, concerned about what most people would consider left and right. In other words, equally concerned about doing justice in the city, racial and economic you know, uh, justice, also being pro-life. Also, in other words, you, you, our concerns ought to not fit in. And inside the church, we need to be making room for people of different political persuasions. Mm-hmm. I need to be, for example, I'll say another one. We should be preaching about creation care. Mm-hmm. We should be preaching about stewardship of the environment. Uh, 
But as soon as you say, well, then you should be speaking out against, um, you know, because of climate change, you ought to be, you know, we as Christians ought to be telling people we need to be for a carbon tax or something like that. <laughs> no, absolutely not, because that's not, you know, let's, the, I, you can definitely talk about what the Bible says about stewardship. And you can influence people, just like corporate taxes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, not corporate tax, corporate profits. I said I can lay, I can preach about the fact that a person who's making corporate profits needs to keep this, this, and this, but this in mind. But I actually can't lay down and say, so here's the Christian tax structure, or here's the Christian corporate tax structure. Mm-hmm. So but, I'm, I'm actually giving you the example. I'm saying this is how I've always been talking yeah. for years, and it gets a lot of people, it gets a lot of people mad. Well, I think that I've, when you're saying this, I think I've found myself in conversations or, or from up front saying um, things like, you know, if you do preach on creation care or something or the importance of stewardship of the environment uh, by God's design, that in and of itself might sound controversial to some people because they're reading in their own views of what they may perceive I mean by that. But in fact, it's not controversial. It's what the Bible teaches. But as right. soon as I go to specifics, it does become something that uh, that doesn't belong maybe in the in the pulpit. It, it's, it's as Christians in their individual conscience uh, working it out. Exactly. And it's the same thing where you say we need, it, we need to care for the refugees. We need to open up to immigrants. We need to help them. We need to love them. As soon as you say, well, but then what we need to do beyond that, of course, is you should be talking about the fact we need to raise the immigration, you know, the, the, you know, the quota every year. And you say, no, 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 I can't go there hmm. because that's a prudential issue. Here, here's the last thing to say. Teach people the book of Proverbs. Hmm. Americans have no way of understanding the book of Proverbs because they read a place where it says, um, it says, uh, uh, if you're poor, pardon me, if you work hard, you won't be poor. Mm. And then three chapters later, it says the, um, the field of the poor is filled with uh, grain, but oppression sw- sweeps it away. Mm. So the one Proverbs looks like it's saying that if you work hard, you won't be poor. And therefore, if you're poor, it's because you didn't work hard. Mm. The other one looks like it's saying if you're poor, it's because of oppression. What they don't realize is Proverbs are not promises and they're not commands. Proverbs are basically observations on how life ordinarily works that's got both a creational good and a fallenness about it, Hmm. and that you need to navigate that. These are not rules. These are not promises. These are guidelines, frankly, for how you make decisions in a way consonant with God's uh, word. Hmm. But at the same time, basically, wisdom is, is all the places where you need to make decisions and yet the word of God has not given you an exact uh, rule for it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Americans don't want that. They want, it's all black and white. It's all, what can I do? What can I, you know, what do I have to do? What am I free to not do? Right. And whereas Proverbs is all about saying, here are, these are the principles and let's think out the various implications. And when it comes to things like politics, they just, they want it to be black and white. Yeah. Uh, they so you need to talk to them about the book of Proverbs and take them through that, and then you'll see that will often actually help people. Rec- it'll help them recognize, oh, okay, I, I need to be politically active, but I got to realize that that there isn't one there isn't one Christian approach to tax structure. Mm-hmm. There isn't one Christian approach to immigration policy. There are extremes that we can say no to. Yeah. 
but there's a lot there's a, there's a lot of room for uh, difference of opinion and that's a really really important part yeah that's really clear and helpful well Tim thank you so much for joining us uh, I really appreciate it thank you for this time you're welcome God bless you and all your work <laughs>